Welcome into the JP and Hack Show, part of the Field of 12 Media Network. This is season one, episode two, presented by our partners at Bet River Sportsbook. I'm Joshua Perry. This is Christian Hackenberg. We are the source on everything Big Ten football, and we got an exciting show coming up for you. We're going to talk a little bit about week zero, some of the reaction there. We've got a great guest, Nicole Auerbach, who's going to be coming up to talk with us in week one is finally here. So we're going to give you some breakdowns, a little bit of a preview of what you're going to see in week one. Christian, you ready? I'm ready, man. I'm ready. I'm excited. All right, let's roll. So uh, segment one, we've got Nebraska, Illinois. That was a week zero game. It was really interesting coming in. And I think we kind of talked about this a little bit, but um, the, the, the question was really around Scott Frost and his team and what they were going to look like uh, in year four. And on the flip side, could Brett Bielema build something at Illinois that was going to be viable? And as we saw, Brett's doing Brett things over there at Illinois. He's a Big Ten guy. He was made for the Big Ten. They had some success. Score, Illinois 30, Nebraska 22. Going through some of the stat lines here, Adrian Martinez, 16-32, 232 passing. One touchdown. He had 17 rushes for 111 yards with a uh, touchdown run of 75 yards. Did get uh, gave the ball away one time on a fumble. That was a scoop and score situation, which you can't have. He was sacked five times. He missed some huge plays. And it just it feels like mistakes in year four are still killing Nebraska. They had that just egregious punt situation that turned into a safety. And it's just, I mean, everything that you're not supposed to do. He's fielding it inside the 10. He was catching it backing up. He went into the end zone. You had an illegal forward pass that really wasn't even a thing at the end of the day. They had penalties, which the big play was the, the one where they forced Art Sikowski into an interception and then, you know, ended up on a 30-yard swing the other way because of two penalties on that play. Had some turnovers, big missed opportunities, special teams. Again, we talked about the pump, but they missed a couple kicks. It was just not a very good outing for Nebraska. Yeah, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head there. There's um... – there's a level of expectation that comes with playing at a place like Nebraska and being the head coach and what type of product you put on the field. We've covered this. It's, you know, I'm not going to keep beating that dead horse and everyone knows what that is. But what I do, um, what I struggle with is how, how Scott Frost has not been able to, it just seems to me, I'm a big culture guy. I think building standards, you know, teams are ran from within the locker room the characters and the people you have. And it's just hard because you look across their, you look across their roster. They have a ton of talent. They have a ton of guys who um, are explosive football players, but there's just something missing in terms of execution. And it's really just a lack of focus to me. It's just focus yes. on, on the small details of the game. And it's weird because you saw Scott at a much smaller market, much smaller team in terms of your recruiting pool in terms of talent at UCF completely turned that team around the team was disciplined they were fun to watch they were explosive um and you think you just hand him this you know huge A1 Abrams tank up there at Nebraska you have limitless funding you have limitless um money to pump into the facilities and you have a huge story tradition and a guy who played there, you think he would be able to bring something like that there and I just don't know what it is and I think that's what everyone's looking at is what is that missing piece? Because everything's there. Um, even like I said, from a talent standpoint on the roster, but there's just something missing and it's a shame. 
Um, it really is. And I hope, you know, I hope there's enough time for them this year to kind of turn things around and, and give us, give us something. But, uh, you know, I, I they got to turn it up because someone's got to push Wisconsin on the West. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting. You talked about a team that just, it looks like they lack focus, even though they have all of these, th- these players. I mean, they've got top 25 recruiting classes that are flowing through there. They've got really good athletes. And um, one of my, one of the things that I said when I was kind of watching that game is they lack that it factor. Like the, the, the great teams just have this, it's intangible, but you just, you can feel what's going on there. And they, they don't play like that. They, it's just like you said, the mistakes, but even, um, when your players and, and I'll use Martinez and he's catching a ton of flack. And I think some of it's really unfair because it's a team sport, but you'll watch him rip off a 75 yard run or thread a needle on uh, a pass into double coverage, just right on the money. And then at the same time in the red zone, they scheme up the perfect play dude is wide open and he misses like those are the types of things that really just kind of make you wonder. Martinez is a guy who's played a lot of ball in the big 10. And uh, to your point, there was, there's feeling that they had to win this game. Like beating Illinois was a winnable deal because when you look down their schedule, they finish off with uh, Wisconsin, Ohio state and um, Iowa, I believe, but they also have Michigan on there and they've got Oklahoma in a non-con game. And so you're looking at all of those and like, you know, not to put the cart before the horse, but that's five losses right there. And you lost the one to Illinois. So you basically have to run the table on the rest of your games to even reach a bowl. And there's going to be a question if they can do that. It's going to be really tough when you flip it onto the other hand, you know, Illinois played a really clean game. Like I said, Brett Bielema ball is back. They had more rushing yards and passing yards, played some tough defense. They held Nebraska to five of 14 on third downs. And it seemed like last year, Illinois couldn't get off the field on third downs. Um, and they ran the time of possession. They had, uh, they won it by about 10 minutes and they had this long ass drive to start the second half where um, they must've chewed up, I don't know, eight minutes off the clock just to start and ended with a score. Uh, Brandon Peters left the game, but Art Sikowski stepped in. He was efficient, 12 of 1,524 yards, two touchdowns, like not, the craziest stat line, but just didn't make a ton of mistakes and kept the offense on schedule. Um, so it's kind of the, the tale of two games right there where you had one team where it seemed like they couldn't get out of their way. The other team, they played football the way it's supposed to be played. Yeah, I was thoroughly impressed with Illinois. Um, you know, I, I love that brand of football. I love, you know, they obviously they have the personnel to do it with Peters and even Sikowski back there. Big guys that can play within the pocket, put them under center and the one thing you noted was being able to run the football. I think that's a massive part. It makes the quarterback's job easier. And I think that's what allowed art to step in there and just not, he didn't have to go win the game to, 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 to a point that you made, he just needed to go in there and facilitate the football, keep the, keep the team on schedule and move it. Um, But I think that's, you know, I think that's one of the things that I, that I look at with the big 10 and what's promising is you see the programs like Illinois with Bielema, I think he's going to always start – he's going to start bringing a team that traditionally was kind of at the bottom of that side of the conference. Yep. He's now going to start pushing everybody else. I think yep. Rutgers on the East, and I said this before, yep. I've said this three or four times, I'm a huge Shiano fan. I think his brand of football, his culture that he's bringing in, um, is going to start shuffling things on, on – you know, basically taking it away from Ohio State, Michigan, and, and Penn State, right? Yeah. Um, 
and Michigan State had kind of fallen off there. But when we were in school, like it was it was those four and then everybody else, you know. So I think I think it's good for the conference when you have teams like that and programs like that who may have been struggling for whatever reasons coming in, bringing in a great brand of football. Mm -hmm. Um, To me, you know, I'm a fan of that style of offense and, um, you know, seeing guys, seeing guys put good product on the field and, and pushing everybody else. I think it's, I think it's good. Um, Unfortunately, Nebraska was on the, was on the wrong end of that. Um, Yeah. And you kind of just said it like the floor, it feels like is rising in the big 10 when you have a Rutgers that's going to have a, a sold-out game uh, on a Thursday night, which is really impressive. And like you said, in Illinois, which, you know, they a, a decade ago made some noise, like 2007, but since then they – yeah, and they, that's still getting nightmares about that as a young Ohio State fan. Um, but, you know, like they're even rising their level. And, I mean, you can even point to programs like a Northwestern, which is not a traditional powerhouse – that's made big 10 championship games over there in the West. Like that's where you start to get excited about the direction of the conference. Um, one of the places what you're, I guess you're not excited about is the direction of this Nebraska program as it is right now. What are your thoughts on how you get that thing put together the right way? They got a new AD in there in Trev Alberts and he's a big culture guy. Like how do you get, that program, and they're not going to be a national title program more than likely, but how do you get them to a place where they were a decade ago where they're playing in a Big Ten championship game? Right, right. So so something that I touched on, I, I, I believe in consistency. I believe in consistent, um, consistent messaging. Um, and when you look at Nebraska, they've had five coaches in the past 22 years. Mm-hmm. Turnover, um, six with uh, Barry Cotton being an intern for a game, right? So – there's been turnover in that program. The Bo Pelini exit was not on the best of terms. And I think it was unceremonious. That, yeah. And at the yeah. end of that, it was just, um, I think they were struggling. Right. So I think if you're in Nebraska, you need to look at it as is Scott our guy? If he is, we got to roll with the punches. And I think um, I don't necessarily know what the thought process is from a university standpoint on that. But if they are sold on Scott, I think they need to give him that leash and let him rock because Martinez, I don't think is the answer. I think he's an electrifying athlete. I think he's a great Mm -hmm. player, but I think for programs like that, they need those rocks. And we touched on this with Penn state uh, at the quarterback position, really since trace, Um, you need a solid guy in there. That's going to drive that ship, whether it be, you know, the quarterback, the running back, there needs to be somebody and there needs to be somebody on defense. I think Nebraska is a compilation of a lot of talent, but nobody is really driving it. Nobody is that, that guy where you look at every Saturday and you're like, all right, he's going to win. He can win us the game. He's never going to lose us the game, but he can win us the game. And I don't think he's had that. I think Scott had that at UCF with the Milton kid, who's now I think at Florida state, you know, he had a guy who was consistent, was going to put him in, was going to put him in positions to win the football game. So I think maybe there's a guy in that pipeline, maybe not. Um, you know, is that your guy? Is that not? If there needs to be a change, there needs to be a change. I think for Nebraska, that needs to be a focus is getting somebody in there or developing somebody who can be that guy for three or four years, give you some consistency and give you some definition in terms of what your DNA of your team and what your um, chemistry is going to look like and what your standard is going to be from inside that locker room because they're going to drive it. 
Yeah, I'm a big standards guy, too. And I think it's really important that you brought that up because there has to be definition, as you said, into what the identity of a program is going to be. Um, I'll touch on a couple of things about Nebraska before we move on here. But uh, I guess the number one thing, if you're evaluating this situation from an administrative standpoint, is with Trev Alberts coming in and the culture that I know that he wants to build there, you have to ask the question, is Scott Frost going to be a culture guy? Like, is he going to be a guy that's going to be in full alignment? And that's something we're going to find out over the course of a season. And that's one of the tough things about transition when you're talking about uh, a new athletic director is now there's a new way of doing things. And I think if, if they believe that Scott is a guy, like you said, you give him the leash, but that evaluation needs to be tough and it needs to be difficult. Um, and one of the things that I would point to in terms of Nebraska and where they're at is they need to have a mentality like Iowa like Wisconsin, like Northwestern in the West, which is you're a developmental program. You get guys out of high school that are maybe a little undersized, maybe a little under-recruited, and you develop those guys into the players that they need to be. And I think Scott Frost has the advantage at Nebraska because of the history that's there. And he can probably pull a better player, but the player development is something that really needs to shine. And I think that's what breaks through at a program like that. So I'll be very interested to look at that. And then the final thing I'll say is this is one of the toughest situations, I think, just kind of looking on the outside and, and just being a guy evaluating it. Because you look at Scott Frost's career arc, and I think it's really unique because he was at Oregon as a wide receiver coach under Chip Kelly. And in Chip Kelly's time, they made four BCS Bowls, one of them being a national championship. Then Chip leaves and they promote Helfrich to the head coaching position And Scott Frost then becomes the offensive coordinator there at Oregon. And they have a ton of success. You look back at that 2014 season. Yeah, I played against those Oregon Ducks, and they're a very good team. And they had Marcus Mariota, who won a Heisman Trophy. Uh, But he was in a very good position to take over a high-powered offense that already had the culture in place, that already had things set. Then he takes the Central Florida job. And it was a program that was in disarray from a player buy-in standpoint. And that's the reason why O'Leary had left the program is because the players had basically quit on him. But when you look at their success leading up to that point, they went to -to back-to-back conference championships. I think they won back-to-back conference championships, excuse me, and they had a Fiesta Bowl. So it wasn't necessarily that the cupboard was fully bare. He just had to get players to really buy into who he was and what he was selling. And we saw that success payoff, but I don't necessarily know that we had seen Scott Frost step into a situation where it was going to be a hard reset, where the players were not what you wanted them to be. The culture wasn't what you wanted them to be. You had to get those things to mesh. Um, And he had everything going for him for this Nebraska job. Obviously he played in in some of the best days in Nebraska football history. And um, there's a lot that goes into that, but on both sides, I think it's really tough because Scott Frost, I think was put into maybe a position to where he thought he could be successful, but maybe it was unproven that he could do it. And Nebraska felt like they had to make that decision, which I don't disagree with. You want to bring one of your own back. And now you're at a crossroads. And I think that's what makes this thing extremely tough is that history and that relationship between the two and trying to manage the expectations of, do you believe that if you give Scott Frost two or three more years, he can build back to a a contender in the West? So do you think he, he has that leash? Like, I mean, I mean, from an outsider's perspective looking in, like, I think like, yeah, like that's your guy. 
you know what I mean? Like, I think yes. like, if you, if you have any semblance or any experience in that world, like you could sit there and say, like, you could make excuses as to why you would give Scott Frost that lease, that leash, yep. as opposed to name anybody else that steps in there. You know what I mean? Do you think it's as long? Like, I want a hot take. I want a JP hot take here. I want to know if it's as long as everyone thinks it is. So this is what I'll, I'll throw out there is I think they're going to give them every opportunity to make it better and mess it up through the rest of this year. Um, and whatever that looks like at the end of the year, I think that's what the evaluation is going to be based on. And there are some factors that play into it. We kind of ran down the rest of their schedule. It's going to be difficult. But there are some of those marginal things that you can look at to see signs of improvement. Your quarterback uh, does not turn the ball over and his play enhances and your team plays with more discipline. They play with more energy, all those different things that can happen. But I think the, the mindset is going to be of if he gets, if he gets the program looking like it's in the right direction, he's going to get his chance. If the rest of the year looks like what we saw in week zero, I think it's going to be really hard to recover from. That's my thought process. Yeah. They, I think they need to pull. I think they need to, I think he needs to put two signature wins together this year. Yep. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you pull the upset uh, against a, a couple of those teams that are out there, which is gettable, like I said, yeah. it's not like they've got a, a terrible roster. They've got some guys. I know. If they can do that, it, it becomes a completely different story. But if you go out there and the games that you're supposed to lose, if they're not even competitive, that's what's going to be disappointing. Yeah. I think so, he, he hasn't even really even had a signature win there, right? I mean, well, I mean, he's got 12 wins in, in, in three yeah, seasons, like, so it's hard to like have a signature win. <laughs> there hasn't been, but there hasn't been like a stamp there where like people could even hang their hat on, oh, well, you know, we at least got X, you know what I mean? Whoever. Right. That. And that's, that's the toughest part about it, man. Yeah. It's just, it's been lackluster. And you, I, I feel for the players in the program more than anything else, because it's, it's difficult being in a place for three, four or five years. And, you know, it's just not happening the way that you had dreamt of it. So, yeah. We'll see where it goes from there. Be interesting to watch. Before we get into our interview with Nicole Auerbach, let me tell you about our sponsors over at Bet Rivers Sportsbook. If you haven't signed up yet, Bet Rivers is offering a $250 match bonus for your first deposit. But what sets them apart from everyone else is that they require just one playthrough to turn that bonus into cash money. With their new Rush Pay instant approval, withdrawals are not only fast, they are safe, secure, and reliable. Go to BetRivers.com today or download the BetRivers iOS app. Must be 21 years or older. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. We are pleased to be joined by our first guest on this podcast, Nicole Auerbach, good friend of mine, senior national college football writer for The Athletic, Sirius XM host, Big Ten Network contributor, also national sports writer of the year. Nicole, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing better after that introduction. Thank you. Yeah, you got to give you the long intro because you've got all the accolades. We're, so many jobs, too many jobs. Well, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I can appreciate that. Uh, we're glad to have you. Obviously, uh, through last year, I think you proved that you're one of the most locked in people when it comes to college football, specifically the Big Ten. Um, so it's good to get some of your perspective. And I'll dive right into it on this uh, alliance deal. And I know you were a part of the press conference, got to ask a question or two there. But what do you make of this alliance that the Big Ten, Pac-12, and ACC have formed? I think it's interesting. I think there's been two schools of thought, right? One is that it's a whole bunch of nothing. And what does it mean if there's no signed contracts? And I think the other school of thought is, well, let's see. Let's see what they're able to do behind the scenes. And I think we're going to get a first glimpse at that in the next month 
there's a meeting in Chicago at the end of September about the college football playoff, the board of managers, the presidents and the commissioners who run this thing. If this group is able to delay playoff expansion, that's a tangible result of the alliance. That's a tangible reason that this is doing something. So you have that, you have the NCAA is revising its model. Um, again, these aren't the, the, the most exciting things. Now, everyone wanted scheduling announcements. Everyone wanted to hear about, you know, Michigan's playing Clemson or whatever, right? But those are behind the scenes, like very macro things that are tangible and could be significant in the future of college sports. So that's where I'm interested in it. And I think a lot of people have been a little bit distracted in the scheduling. And like the way that multiple people have described it to me is 80% governance CFP that type of stuff, 20% scheduling. What I think will be cool though, is if the scheduling piece looks like I think it's going to, or what at least people are talking about it possibly looking like, you would go down to eight conference games in the Pac-12 and the Big 10, and then you'd play an ACC team and a Pac-12 team every year. So you'd have one of them at home. That would be really cool. And so, you know, again, that's just one of the possibilities being discussed, but I love that idea that would really strengthen whatever this is. But I also think even from just a governance standpoint, there are going to be real results where we'll see, are they actually going to vote as a block on certain things or, you know, will competing interests essentially overrule that? But I, but I think it's important. I think it's important to provide a checks and balances system for the SEC, especially with new commissioners, especially on the heels of Oklahoma and Texas and playoff expansion Someone needed to do something. And so I, I think it makes sense what they proposed. And now it's just the time to see again over the first month and then, you know, months to come, like what it actually looks like in practice. But I like the idea of providing a checks and balances. Well, the, the follow up to that, though, is uh, the, the press conference was very vague. And I know that you're locked in on a little bit of a different level, but you brought up this idea that they would vote together or there could be some circumstances where they would break apart. Um, do, does it worry you at all that there isn't a, a formal document or a signed contract but between the three conferences? I think it came across not in the greatest way, right? It felt like, oh, well, this doesn't mean much at all then. But I think if you think about it from a legal perspective, it makes sense because mm-hmm. the whole immediately and, and already the lawyers involved in the Alston case that went to the Supreme Court already jumped on it. Mm-hmm the next day anyway. But if you had three leagues essentially colluding to vote a certain way, to do certain things together, you would immediately, immediately get sued. So I think you've got to think about the backgrounds of Kevin Warren, George Klyovkov, the Pac-12 commissioner. They're in law. They they know what they're doing. And so, yeah, does it, does it come across as like, wow, this isn't very formal in a press conference setting? Yes. Does it make sense from a legal perspective? Also? Yes. But I, like, I totally get it. I get why a lot of people watch that press conference. And they were like, oh, this seems like a whole lot of nothing. Because the real point was like, this is the beginning. And we just kind of want to publicly say we're together in this. And we're drawing a line in the sand. And the SEC is on the other side of said line. And that was kind of the main point that they wanted everyone to take away from that day. No, I mean, I think that it's definitely important to kind of have that line in the sand. Um, and you brought it up, too. These are the least experienced commissioners uh, in the Power Five. And so I think it is important to kind of leverage together uh, the assets that they have and kind of grow together 
in this changing environment. Something that you brought up, and I think something that everybody is very interested in, is this idea of the college football playoff expanding. And kind of the way that it happened is we we heard that there was going to be a 12-team situation that was going to pop up. And then all of a sudden, Texas and Oklahoma are dipping to the SEC, and people are like, let's pump the brakes. Because all the work was done in the background, kind of knowing this move was going to happen. So uh, you talked about a meeting that's upcoming in Chicago. What do you think the results of that meeting are going to be? At this point, as we're recording this, I think it's going to have to be delayed. I, I think that there were already people who saw the Texas and Oklahoma news and, you know, were sort of like, we need to see how the dust settles, whatever on this. But you already had momentum, especially coming out of the Big Ten and the Pac-12, which have relationships with Fox and multiple partners. You already had people saying, like, we should not expand this thing until our contract is up and we can get more money. We can get multiple broadcast partners, different rounds, like the NFL playoffs. And when you have other brands and broadcast companies financially involved in the sport, they're going to cover it better. They're going to devote more resources to it. They're going to talk about it more. So there's a lot of reasons to wait till 2026. But you mentioned that the key here is that a lot of stuff is happening behind the scenes. And there was a four-person working group. And after the fact, the leagues like the Big Ten, ACC, Pac-12 that weren't on the working group are sort of like, we didn't realize you were going to decide the whole thing. Like the level of detail in the proposal, the way that they announced it to get fans excited about it. Everyone's expectation at that point was, oh, they'll have to figure this out in the next year or two. And it's going to have to happen soon. You can't wait five years. But all of that was kind of boxing everybody into this model, the way that it was written, and a shorter timeline, which would mean it would probably have to be ESPN that they would renegotiate in this exclusive window. So I think that's where people are like, hold on, let's pause. And also Greg Sankey was one of the four people in the working group. He had knowledge of the Oklahoma and Texas thing that other people in that room, including the Big 12 commissioner, did not have. And that's where people are taking issue with it. Like that's where people get mad and upset and distrustful in college sports. It's not that there was a working group and they wanted to expand the playoff. It's that one member of that group knew about Oklahoma and Texas and the other people did not. Right. Yeah. So I think, I think my question would be is like, you were talking about the timing of all this and kind of the fluidity of, and like backdoor handshakes of all of these alliances. Like, I think, um, what I'm interested to see is what your opinion is in terms of like, what's next? Like, what does the timing now look like in terms of that expansion? Um, what does the timing of maybe soliding up and contractually figuring out that alliance in terms of how they're going to do it and what that looks like and the impact that has then on the rest of college football? I think, um, I think listening to you, obviously you're really well versed in it and i would be interested to see a little bit more of like your opinion, deep dive into exactly what that means and the timing and, and where you see it going and the direction you see it going. Yeah. I mean, I would love to see the big 10 and the PAC 12 figure out the conference games standpoint. If they're able mm -hmm. to drop it to eight for as soon as like, let's say next season, then you can add those games really soon. And, and I think you could also possibly buy out some of the non-conference games that exist between now and like 2025. Um, Cause I think Michigan is fully booked between now and then, but again, if you drop a conference game, you add a Saturday and you can do this. So I would love to see the scheduling piece start next season. I don't know if that's 
fully viable, like in terms of the entire, all the schools, but maybe you could say like five or six are going to start the Alliance and start these games. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that that's going to be something I I do think that they are going to try to work as a voting block. I think that means when the NCAA gets revamped and revised, Mm -hmm. I think that they're going to try to figure out ways to, and maybe it's just as three conferences, but maybe they decide we're going to, you know, we're going to change the scholarship limits in baseball and like some of the other sports and we can afford it. So we're going to do that. Um, So I think you're going to see little things like that. I do think the playoff expansion will be delayed. I think it probably, if you're, if you're doing this from like a dollars and cents standpoint, it should be delayed to 2026 Mm -hmm. because that's when you're going to get the most money. Um, But I, I think it all kind of speaks to me, like all of these situations, including Oklahoma and Texas and everything that's happened over the last month and a half, it speaks to like ESPN's influence on the sport Yep, I feel like that's one layer to this that people aren't talking about because they they do broadcast and own so much of this sport. But that's something like when I think about this personally, in my opinion on it, I think this exposes that. And I think that it becomes pretty apparent, you know, again, you know, the idea of expanding the playoff, but letting ESPN broadcast the whole thing when you're adding three times the amount of games like that's that's a real that's an issue And, and you wouldn't want to do that if you have other Fox and NBC and CBS and all these other people might want to get involved, but this is the sport that they own and they broadcast. And when we, even when we talk about like Joshua, we've had so many conversations about like the playoff prism that the only way to be successful in college football these days is to make the playoff. And then, and it wasn't even enough for Notre Dame last year because Brian Kelly's still telling everyone to, you know, don't jump off a ledge because we lost in the playoff. Like, right. All of that is ESPN's creation. So that's one of the things that I continually dwell on and think about is how do you offset that? Because I I don't think that's the healthiest thing for the sport. And I also don't think it's the healthiest thing for the SEC to consolidate power in the Southeast. So like, that's why, like what I'm going to give benefit of the doubt to the Alliance, because I think it's important to have somebody pushing back on the SEC. Yeah, I mean, you talk about that that power shift, and I agree with you 100%. And I think that even filters down to things like recruiting, where if all the best teams um, are in the SEC, and that's already where all the best talent is, like that definitely can hurt the sport just in terms of different teams' ability to recruit. But you talked about these TV contracts, and that's one of the things that we talked about in the first episode, Christian and I, was the fact that um, when you have an alliance like this, and we didn't know what the alliance was going to be, but we were kind of speculating. And then you move forward and you talk about this playoff expansion idea. Fox, which was born to broadcast football, they started with the NFL, um, has a relationship with the Big Ten, has a relationship with the Pac-12, and has a relationship with the Big 12 teams that are kind of being snuffed out of this thing. And so it does benefit them to a certain extent to try to make sure that as those conversations happen, they can get in on the action. Like you said, it's a ton of games for ESPN to handle, and it would be interesting to be able to spread those games around. Um, I want to uh, kind of shift a little bit, unless, Christian, you look like you had something to say. I got something. The one thing that I think is interesting is you were talking about, like, the health and the well-being of college football. And I think the one point that you brought up was those smaller uh, market teams and those smaller market games, those Appalachian states and the Delawares of the world. Um and this was a point that Josh and I talked about last time, you know, I kind of made the, I made the comment that that's capitalism and, you know, some, someone gets eaten up and that's kind of how it goes. But I think, you know, there is value to those games at times when you have the Appalachian States that beat the Michigans 
and the amount of reruns and stuff that you see out of that. So Nicole knows think? a lot about that game. That, uh, was, that was your first my game, first game as a yes. freshman at Michigan. <laughs> yes. So she knows a lot about that one. That was actually, this is a relevant weekend too. As a matter of fact, with the big 10 network, that was yep. one of their first broadcasts. It was the yeah. first day of the There network. you go. So look at us. Yep. We're bringing history into it. Full circle here. But I, do wanna, I do want to get your opinion then. Like, what do you think happens to those uh, smaller sub-conference teams now that you're starting to see the bigger conferences position themselves to where it's going to be like the SEC and then the Big Ten, the Pac-12, and the ACC, they're going to try to s- trim the fat of their schedules to be able to buff it up and, and be able to compete with a schedule that somebody who plays in the SEC does from a uh, – from a, a strength of schedule standpoint and what that means for playoffs and things of that nature moving forward. So like, what do you think happens with these smaller teams? How do we handle that? And how do you think, I mean, I personally think the NCAA is going to try to get involved with that in a little it, at some level just to keep relevance, but what do you think happens with, with those programs? Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a, a very valid question because um, you know, if you are blocking off more Saturdays for people's schedule, you make it, impossible to schedule that way. And there's a lot of reasons that people schedule those games. I mean, again, you, you mentioned like kind of the health of the sport in those programs, like the money that those schools get for playing those games is a, is a big deal. It like props to the entire athletic department. And that's why you see a lot of like the Michigans of the world will schedule like the directional schools because the money stays in state. Like it's really helpful. Um, And, you know, there's alumni bases. Like there's a lot of reasons that people do this. There's coaches, obviously who are worried about job security or reaching a bowl game. Like there's reasons that people schedule those games. Um, And I I think that that is a real concern. It was a concern when the big 10 and PAC 12 went to nine conference games. I mean, just you're taking away opportunities. And I, I do wonder about the playoff expansion piece in this, because if they're actually able to incentivize good scheduling. Like if they say, if you lose two or three games, but they're two good teams, we're not going to ding you too much. You can still make the playoff. Then you're going to see lots of people like we've seen a lot of home and homes already scheduled for like post 2025. I think you're going to see more of that. But that, that, that does become the question. Like, is this just kind of that upper level of football kind of essentially breaking off from everybody else? Or do you care about those types of games and the health of the rest of the sport and these other athletic departments? Because financially, a lot of this stuff doesn't make a ton of sense. And like the way college sports is set up doesn't make a ton of sense. Like football and basketball, like subsidize everything else the tournament subsidizes everything else for like all mm-hmm. these other schools. Yep. Does that stuff matter to you? Like does the idea of, of spreading the wealth matter or are you going to just be looking out for your schools from a scheduling standpoint? People are worried about declining attendance, your TV revenue, all these things. Like does that over, does that, does that take over instead of, you know, again, scheduling the directional schools in your state to help those athletic departments. Like these are kind of those existential questions that I think people are going to have to answer about like, what do they want college football to look like five years from now or 10 years from now? Like that, that is like one of the fundamental questions about financially, how do they want it to work? And do you want to be under the same umbrella, even if it's a subdivision difference as app state? Well, now they're in the Sun Belt, but as you know, Delaware and as those schools, do you want to be in a situation where you are spreading the wealth when you're even scheduling those teams? Like they, they, they're fundamentally going to have to think about if they want that to be part of the model. Yeah. yeah it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, obviously there's a lot of change coming in this landscape and uh, a lot of it's driven by the finances, like you mentioned. So I'm very curious. Uh, I want to get you out of here on this. 
just your general thoughts on the Big Ten. Who do you see having standout seasons? Some players to look out for. I know that you're big on um, some of the personalities that exist in the conference. So I'd like to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's another year where it's Ohio State and we wait for someone else to close the gap. Um, I, I think, you know, my alma mater, Christian school, like these are the schools we've been waiting. And every time you see the game get played, it's like, here's still that gap. And, um, you know, obviously things are tense with Jim Harbaugh and, you know, what is a level of success that would be enough for Michigan fans? Um, you know, again, it's, it's beating Ohio state. It's competing for big 10 championships and they haven't really been able to do that. Do that. Did, does Caden McNamara, like, can he hit on a quarterback? Like that's just an overall standpoint. Um, Wisconsin, I'm interested to see Graham Mertz. I'm interested to see the receiving core this year, if they can actually get a vertical passing game going. Mm -hmm. I love Indiana. I think it's wild to think that they have high expectations and possibly could only disappoint us. Like we're in a world where we think so highly of, of Indiana football. Um, so I, I think there's a lot. And, and I think, you know, to uh, the Penn state question is really interesting. Fifth offensive coordinator in the James Franklin era. What does that look like for Sean Clifford for his fourth mm -hmm. OC? What does that offense look like? But really like it's, it's about somebody figuring out a way to close the gap on Ohio state. And, and it's not even a really a big 10 problem, even though we see it every year, but like, there's just, Clemson, Alabama, and Ohio State are at a level that no one else is at. So it's like, it's just so hard to close that and they don't get down. They just reload. Like, that's why we're talking about CJ Stroud and being like, he's going to be great, even though he hasn't thrown a pass in college. Right. Why would we, why would we doubt him based on everything we've seen of the Ryan Day era, even from the Urban Meyer era? So um, I think that's overall, you know, what I'm looking at. And I think there's going to be great stories. You know, again, if Indiana stays relevant, um, that's going to be really interesting. Rutgers, 20 minutes from where I grew up, always have a soft spot for them. Can they take that first, next first game is sold out, sold out. There's a lot of positive momentum recruiting for Greg Schiano and company. Um, so yeah, it's just, there's, there's a lot of little stuff, but the big picture is just, you know, it, our Penn state and Michigan, particularly, maybe we can have the conversation about Wisconsin or somebody in the West, but can they close the gap on Ohio state? And, and if not, what is the plan to do that? And, you know, it's, it's just really hard right now. Yeah. It'll be fascinating to watch. I appreciate you spending some time with us. Um, definitely have some fun. We'll catch up obviously on the big 10 network some weekends in Chicago, but looking forward to your work this fall. Absolutely. Thanks guys. Honored to be the first guest. All right, let's jump into our third segment. We got week one action. So let's run down some of the games. Start with the Thursday night game. I think the one that a lot of people are going to be tuned into, and that is number four, Ohio State visiting Minnesota. Uh, Ohio State is a 14 and a half point favorite per uh, Bet River Sportsbook. OSU comes in, new starting quarterback in C.J. Stroud. Defense struggled last year. I mean, it was like historically bad in Columbus. Um, and they're still seen as one of the most superior teams in college football, a college football playoff contender. And the feeling around Columbus is playoff or bust. On the flip side, you've got Minnesota with a very, very veteran team, Tanner Morgan, who I have a ton of respect for just based off of what he did in 2019 and owning the 2020 year, you've got Mo Ibrahim, who's a returning Big Ten running back of the year. You got five returning starters along that offensive line, something like 10 starters coming back on defense. What to you makes this game intriguing? 
Well, I think you just highlighted it. I think it's the fact that Minnesota is a very veteran team. I am, I've been sold on PJ Flex since he was at Rutgers recruiting me. Um, I love the guy's energy. I love what he's done there. Um, and when you talk about brand and culture, I think he is one of the top guys, not only in the Big Ten, but in college football in terms of totally agree. culture expectations. When you step in there, I haven't seen a P.J. Fleck team when they've had an opportunity like this to step on this stage completely shit the bed. You know what I mean? He, yep. he finds a way to get the kids motivated. So I think yep. it is a um, – it's an intriguing matchup in the sense that you have a, a, obviously a very green player and C.J. Stroud stepping in. Mm-hmm. He's taking over the reins of a super high-powered offense. I love Garrett Wilson. He was my Heisman sleeper pick. I think the guy's incredible. Um, can play everywhere as kind of a Swiss Army knife. And you have Olave, who's obviously yep. is what he is. Um, and then they're always going to have the ability to run the football. So I think that that's what it's – I think that's kind of the matchup. I think it's can Minnesota put together a similar type of control the clock, keep it out of their hands, don't let the, off- don't let the Ohio State offense get in rhythm, methodically move the football – and I think, I think they got a shot in this. You know, I'm not going to say they go out and beat them, but I think that this is going to be much closer than what that line says it is. Um, and I think, uh, you know, I think it's going to be – I think the, 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 the true matchup is going to be can, can Minnesota defensively show up, you know, get maybe a couple turnovers, do something that's going to be a big momentum change, and can the offense control the football and methodically move it and execute it and win the time of possession. I think if you win the time of possession – and the turnover battle, you know, statistics say you got a shot. Um, and I think that if they can limit those things and do that and rely on that experience from the offensive side, I think they got a shot at it. Um, you know, but obviously there's a ton of expectations at Ohio State, so we'll see. Yeah, this is going to be the interesting one, man, because I think this game gets more uncomfortable than Ohio State fans want it to be. And it's exactly what you said with a young quarterback, I I think that is one of the most difficult positions you've been there before to be in, especially heading into a primetime game. It's on the road for the first time. Um, And Minnesota's going to be excited about this one. Like everybody's got their fans back, but Minnesota's got new naming rights on their stadium and they get to be in that primetime and that night game atmosphere. Uh, and, And then the other question for me is, defensively, like, do we see that step forward right now for Ohio State, or is this something that's going to be more of a build? And if it's going to be a build, that's fine, but this is where the game gets hairy because Tanner Morgan's a guy where if you let him get in a rhythm, he's going to hurt you. Same thing with Muhammad Ibrahim. If you let that guy get going, he's going to hurt you. And you need to see, and, and this is where I think Ohio State really can gain an edge in the game, is last year I thought the production out of the defensive end position was not what you wanted it to be. And I think that really hurt the secondary. And a lot of people point to the secondary, but those two things work together. And so I think that if Ohio State's defensive line, especially at those end positions, can win the line of scrimmage in the run game, which means setting great edges, which means being uh, playing with gap integrity, and then they can make Tanner Morgan uncomfortable. And what I mean by that is get him out of his rhythm. He likes to, it's, it's an RPO type situation but he's going to want to read it. And then he's going to want to get the ball of his hands quick. If you can disrupt that by changing up looks in the back end or by getting in his face early on, I think that's where the edge really is. But I'm kind of with you on this one. I think this is not necessarily um, Ohio state's not in, in upset alert territory, 
But I think that this game becomes uncomfortable for a team that feels like they're one of the best in the country. I, I just there's something about this Minnesota team that's really, really exciting to me. So we'll see that Thursday too. night. It's real easy too for Ohio State to start looking ahead because they got Oregon next week. It is. So it is. That, you know, a, a young team. You yep. know, a young a young kid starting a quarterback. You know. Yeah. I, well, and it's it, to your point. Like Ohio State is, I think, the least experienced team in the Big Ten in terms of returning production. So it, it is a young team, and there's something that goes to that mentality. So I, I think it's, it's, there's intrigue around this one. I know that a lot of people expect Ohio state to run away, but I just don't think Minnesota's a slouch. So that'll be exciting. Moving on to the next one. We got your boys, number 19, Penn state heading to camp Randall. You ever play there? I did. I played there as well. Last time Penn state's been there. That was a uh, – that is not a fun place to play. Number 12, uh, Wisconsin. Uh, they are a five-and-a-half-point favorite per Bet River Sportsbook. Um, and like you said, Wisconsin hasn't been to Camp Randall in a long time. It's James Franklin's first time in Madison. Uh, Sean Clifford on his third OC as a starter in three years, his fourth one since he's been in the program. But they've got a deep running back room. They've got Jahan Dotson, who's one of the best playmakers in the country, um, and they've got some some sizable guys in the secondary defensively. When you flip the script to Wisconsin, they're going to be featuring a, a transfer running back alongside Grand Mertz. Uh, I think they've got more offensive skill than they typically have, and defense is supposed to be good per usual. Um, my thought process on this is it will be a quarterback-driven game. And what I mean by that is if Grand Mertz can be the explosive stretch-the-field guy that we saw in his debut against Illinois – I think that the complexion of this game gets really interesting offensively for Wisconsin. On the flip side, if the all of the changes, and you can speak to this, but just learning a new terminology and learning a new system and learning a new play calling rhythm, if if Sean Clifford can get over all of those things and he can be the the gutsy electrifying player that we know him to be, I think Penn State can really be exciting in this game. So, so here's what I'll say. I, I really like Yersich. I think he's awesome. I've got, I got a chance to talk to the guy a few times. Um, and if, if, if I was stepping into that situation, the thing that I would be doing is I would have been meeting with Sean throughout camp, throughout spring ball, mm-hmm. throughout every time that I could be with him and see what he's very comfortable with. Cause it's not like you have a young guy who hasn't played football. And then you can also do your homework, watch tape, see what he looks confident doing see what he does and don't try and stuff a square peg into a round hole. Sure. Put him in situations where he's going to be confident, especially year one. You have, like you said, you have a great running back room. You have Dotson. I think that, I think that receiving core has the ability to have another riser in there somewhere mm-hmm. due to the amount of recruiting that coach has, that coach Franklin's done up there. Um, but I think, uh, I think um, that's what I would do from, an offensive standpoint for Penn state. I would make sure you put Clifford in comfortable situations, go back, look what he does well, and don't try to roll out this extravagant, big, you know, this is my show. This is my system. Play within your players, make them comfortable and let them go because they have enough experience there. What scares me about Penn state defensively Mm -hmm. is the front four. I think watching them last year, 
the defensive front was not as strong as it has been in the past years. Strong, you mean like physically strong or physically strong? They've went so more of the athletic, long body type guys. Yes, they have. Yeah. And and I'll jump in on that real quick. That yeah, was one I'm of the things that I noticed when we went and watched Penn State practice. Is those guys are definitely athletes up front. Like they can move, but it's a smaller body type than what you're going to see uh, along a lot of Big Ten defensive fronts. And so I think that, you know, I think this is where you're kind of getting at is yes. that direct run game that yes. Wisconsin has lived on. Exactly. If, if they can't hold up against those hogs up front in that direct run game, it could be a very long day. It's going to be a long game. And that's where I think the other element of it is, is Wisconsin has a kid who has shown that he can play down the field and hurt you. Um, I don't think it's necessarily going to have to be a situation where if you, if Wisconsin can go in there and control the line of scrimmage and to what you were saying, pound the football, then I think it opens up where you don't necessarily have to have that guy outside that is just going to blow by one-on-one coverage, do all these things. I think you're going to be able to open it up with play action and you're going to be able to manufacture shots. Oh yeah. Taking advantage of the fact that you've been able to run the football. Um, and that's where I don't care how good your secondary is. Guys are going to be put on islands and you're going yep. to have to have some plays made. So I think to me, that's going to be the interesting thing. You know, I think Penn state from a defensive back standpoint and at linebacker, um, they're athletic enough. They can roll, they can go, but mm-hmm. I think they've kind of tooled that and built that to play against the Ohio States and the teams that want to spread it out and be able to run East and West with these teams. When you get yes. a matchup like this, it's going to be interesting. So I think that's going to be the thing to watch. Um, and I think to your point, you know, I think it's going to be driven by quarterback play. If Penn state can make some explosive plays, control the ball a little bit and have it turn into a shootout, I think Penn state can run away with it. Um, but I think the matchup's going to be the Wisconsin front, how they're going to run the football and the Penn state front seven. Okay. So two things off of that, before we move on, I, I think you hit it spot on in terms of, the way that Penn State's defense is set up. I think that they are one of the only teams in the conference that can get near the speed on the field that Ohio State has. And I think that's what they've been chasing. And I think that's what it would really take to be able to pull that signature against Ohio State is to have those guys who are athletes out there on defense. So I I think that's a very astute point that you made. Second thing is I freaking love doing shows with quarterbacks because you're speaking the language and you're talking about this play action and putting guys on islands. And like, I'm getting flashbacks and nightmares of of being a defensive player when a team is just like running the piss out of the ball. And then like everybody's sucked up in the run game and you're like, Oh, ball's going over our head. It is just like, Oh my God. So yeah, I mean, it's, this could be really interesting. It's a thing of beauty, bro. Like that's, and that's the thing for you. Yeah, I know. But I, that's why, I feel like there's so many fads in football, but like if you can run the football, yes, you take the matchup aspect out of it and you can manufacture big plays. Man. Yes, you can. And as a quarterback, like that, I mean, that's my like that's my baby. That was my system that I loved. And unfortunately, like, you know, there's been this whole change and all that stuff, but I, I just love that like old school pound it, work off big play action, get the guys on yep. the edge. Because I think it just eliminates so much of the things that you're talking about that the game has become, the matchup game it now becomes a game of physicality and execution. And you don't necessarily have to have these guys that are going to run by you. You're going to, you're going to create that separation through your tempo, your play calling and how you do things. So I think it's there's nothing of, like, there's nothing. Wisconsin. 
I do too. And it's nothing like flipping on a game and watching two guys in a route and it's just like a, a big play touchdown. And it's like, okay, they had, you know, basically six or seven guys to cover two. And it's just the way that you can create that delay and create that space in the back end. And it just, it gives you that edge. I'm with you 100%. Um, and so that kind of leads into this next matchup here where you've got number 17, Indiana, visiting number 18, Iowa. Iowa is a five and a half point favorite in that game. Um, and I was going to be that team in a lot of ways. And I think Spencer Petrus is that pro style quarterback built in that mold. And they've got uh, Tyler Goodson, who is one of the best running backs in the conference, who can get you that downhill game. Um, and Tyrone Tracy is a wide receiver for Iowa who can be that guy. And, and it's not just I think he can separate without the play action, but you get him in that situation and it can be very dangerous. When you flip it to the other side, Michael Penix Jr. is now returning. And they've got Ty Freifogel at wide receiver. And they've got a defense that's got a couple of returning All-Americans, Michael McFadden at linebacker. You've got Taiwan Mullen at quarterback and a bunch of other guys that can play in a really active front seven. And so as I evaluate this game, this is what I'm going to be looking at, is I was going to have to handle the defensive looks from Indiana. And they put it on tape all last year, but that front seven is going to be active. You never know where the blitz is coming from. You never know who's actually going to be in the rush. It's going to be simulated pressures. It's going to be four-man rush. It's going to be five-man go. They're going to send six at times. And they have to be prepped for all those looks. But on the flip side, Iowa's defense is so different where they don't really blitz all that often. And so as a quarterback like Michael Penix, who's a big play guy, it's going to test his patience because that's where they get you into mistakes. And that's where they can start taking the ball away is when you start going after a defense in a more aggressive manner than they're playing you, you're putting yourself in a very exposed position. And I think that's going to be the matchup of the game. I agree with you. I think, I think the bend don't break philosophy and just playing sound defense has kind of been something that Iowa has always done. I don't think they've ever been really complex. Um, you know, to me, Iowa lacked consistency outside of the red zone last year. They were yeah. the number one team in the Big Ten in terms of red zone um, percentages and conversions. So I think offensively for them, it's going to be, can they put it all together? Can they have a consistent attack that's going to keep them on schedule and move them up and down the field and give them the opportunity to do what obviously they have already done well is score when they get chances, when they get inside the 2025. Um, and I think from an Indiana standpoint, I think your points about the defense is, uh, is very, very solid. I think they're going to thrive on takeaways and confusion. So uh, Spencer Petrus is going to have to stay on it. He's going to have to be prepared and he's going to have to be able to handle those things, whether it be, uh, run game opportunities or pass game opportunities, whatever it is, he's going to need to be able to handle that. And they're going to need to have him prepared to do that. But I think Indiana, um, this is a chance for them to continue to ride off the momentum of last year. I know that, you know, the old Miss game kind of hampered out a little bit, but they still have had high expectations all off season yep. heading into this one. And then to your point, the Southpaw, Michael Penix is back. Mm -hmm. uh, I think everything's going to run through him this year for them um and uh if they can ride the momentum and he can continue to play really well and the defense can continue to give him opportunities some takeaways some short field opportunities the uh offense is powered to score a lot of points they're very they're very high powered i think you know they have a great receiving core um that can stretch it and win one-on-one matchups uh so i think it's going to be i think that's going to be unique so i think that's 
I think you hit the nail on the head with your points. And, um, you know, to me, just adding some, adding a little sauce in there, I think it's going to be run off the momentum and Michael Penix for you. Yeah, I think that momentum thing is, uh, it's one of those intangibles that is really important in the game of football. And you've been on both sides of the momentum swings. And for Indiana, this is going to be a huge moment to capitalize on. And I don't think that the bowl loss really stifled any of that momentum. They're sitting here in the top 20 as we speak right now. Um, And so, like you said, for them, they've got to be able to continue and to capitalize on that. And I think Tom Allen is the perfect leader for that because he's a guy who's high energy, but he also really cares about players. So he's going to make sure that they're mentally right. But he's also one of the things that he does. I don't think he gets enough credit for this is he is a phenomenal teacher. So when it comes to in-game adjustments and when it comes to relaying information to his team, he does that just about as well as anybody that I've ever met. And I think when you get into these games, that's where it matters. Can you rally the troops? Can you communicate all the changes and the corrections that are going on? And can you keep guys bought in and motivated through all the ups and downs? Can they ride that wave? And so I, like this, I, this one's the hardest one for me to call out of all, all the big games that we're going to see this weekend because I do think that they are pretty evenly matched teams. But it's just like the more I think about how big of a moment this is for Indiana, the more I, I think about how the intangible aspect might be the difference in the game. Yeah, I agree. And I, to me, though, I, I don't think you can take away from Kirk Ferentz either. I think, At all. I think him and Tom are very different in terms of yes. how they are as motivators. But I think, you know, Kirk has – a proven track record of being a guy who his team shows up to play. They yeah, very, they're steady very, as they go. Very, very rarely get absolutely blown out, especially mm-hmm. in games like this that have this hype. They show up, they're ready to play, um, and they're at home. So, yeah, Kinnick's a bitch. I've never played yeah. there, but everybody I, who I, I talk to – I've never to, played there either, but I heard the same thing. Yeah, they say it's awful, and they got that wave that they do at the beginning of the game, and I think that uh, you know it kind of takes the edge off of teams – They've got the pink locker rooms. I, I think they still got those. So it's it's definitely an environment that'll be something to watch. Uh, let's run through these final games and just give me, you know, just kind of your thoughts, I guess. Yeah. Do you, yeah, do do you think they're going to win them? Um, so Temple at Rutgers, it's Thursday night game. Uh, Rutgers favored by 14 and a half. Do you think that's about right? Yeah, I'm, I'm excited for this Rutgers team. I've never – I don't think anyone's more excited about Rutgers football than me. I, I'm – I, like, I might I might be up there with you. I, I'm yeah, I'm with I, you. I love I love Greg. I, I love we'll what he's say doing. Us here. I yeah. Mean, I, I you know I don't know if it's this year. I don't know if it's going to be next year. But I know within the next five years, I think Rutgers is going to be a team that's going to make some noise and to your point, really raise that floor in the big. Yes. Team. I, mean, I think they're gonna. I think they're gonna. They're they're poised to do good things. And I, I agree. With sold you. out a sold out stadium in Piscataway. Mm-hmm. to your point, is also a bitch. I mean, I, I that's where we opened up for their first Big Ten game. We ended up beating them, but it was loud. It was rowdy. You get a bunch of those Jersey guys in there, you know, they, they get after it. So Yeah, you know about Jersey guys, too. Yeah, no. <laughs> so, uh, that, I, I like them, too. I think that they got this one. It's going to be, again, this is a big one, just a statement coming out for their program, but I like them in that one. You've got Michigan State at Northwestern. This is a Friday night game. And this is a a revenge game for Northwestern. That was their only regular season loss a year ago. Um, I think the Wildcats have this one, and it's simply because I think they're further ahead in their program. They're established. Mel Tucker, I still don't think, has had enough time to recruit the players that he really wants. 
but also to build the program into what he wants it to be. It's a, a high pressure, high energy type of situation. I still think everybody's getting used to that. I agree. I'm with you. I'm on board. I'm a big Pat Fitzgerald fan. Um, and um, really respect what he's done over the years. So uh, yeah, I'm with you. I think Northwestern, I think Northwestern gets it, gets it done. So we've got uh, Western Michigan at Michigan. Michigan is a 17 and a half point favorite in this one. I mean, I think it's decided Cade McNamara will be something to watch. And then they've got a new look defense with a new coordinator. They're moving to a three, four. So I'm curious to see what that looks like, but Michigan should roll in this game. I agree. I'm excited to see um, if offensively they can put a very, very sound game together. That's, I think that's what's really been missing from Michigan. And I think you, you look at Harbaugh traditionally, he's always had that everywhere he's gone. And I think he's really struggled to do that here. Um, so I'm excited to see hopefully them put together something really solid and some momentum moving into the, moving into the early part of the season. I'm with you on that. We've got Fordham at Nebraska. This is the bounce back game. They're favored by 40 and a half points. Um, I'm not exactly sure that game gets 40 and a half points out of hand, even though it's against an FCS opponent, but this will get them back on track. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I don't know if it's 40 and a half. I mean, Scott's a lot of points. He might try to do it. He um, should try to do it. He should. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's a big, I think that's a big number. It's a huge number. Um, West Virginia is favored over Maryland. They're playing at Maryland. Um, this is going to Loxley's team is the most interesting one to me in the East from a standpoint of, I think that they've got a really low floor and a really high ceiling where their bad moments can be really bad and they can turn the ball over and they can play sloppy on defense and they can have a ton of penalties. But when they have that thing humming and they're playing clean football and the defense is sound and Talia Tungavailoa is throwing the ball around to those athletes, they got Rakim Jarrett and they've got Dante Demas out there. Like they can be super exciting. So I'm curious to see how this one unfolds. Yeah, me too. I think that'll be a game to watch. I mean, I think that'll be one of those games where if you're a college football fan, like turn that one on. I think it'll be fun. Um, you know, and I think you made great points about Maryland as well. I think they're the way they recruit the area that they have. Yes. They call home base is such a, such a hotbed for talent. You know, if they, if they, if they're able to string a couple of years together, they're another team that could turn it around, you know, very quickly by keeping some guys home. So um, we'll see what happens. No, I agree with that. Uh, we've got Oregon state at Purdue. Purdue is favored in this game by seven and a half points. Um, this is this is a big year for Jeff Brom, I think, in his program and the respect that they want to garner. Um, and the way that I watched him coach his team, we stopped there at, at training camp. The the word aggressive comes to mind, and that's the word that he used. That's the word all the players use. So I can't wait to see this aggression out on the field. Yeah. Who did they name Aiden O'Connell the starter there? I think it was Jack Plummer. They're gonna go with Jack Plummer again. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I think, you know, the way that that kid played last year, I think after Plummer got hurt was was pretty cool. I think the kid's mm -hmm. a walk-on, got a great story. I think if you yeah. have kids like that within your program, it, it's a telltale sign of how you want to run things. So um, I think that'll be interesting to see. Definitely. And then the last one we got on our list to end off the show here is we got UTSA at Illinois. Couldn't find a line on this one, but uh, I expect Brett to roll. And uh, I'm excited again for the this Illinois team. And when you run down their schedule, just these next five games that they have, I think there are five winnable games. And it would be really interesting to see Illinois in Brett's first year be bowl eligible after their first six games. 
bowl eligible, you know, who knows what can happen in college football, you know, maybe, maybe get in the top 25 for, for a bigger game later in the season. I think that, I think that would be sweet. It'd be a Cinderella story. Um, and yeah, I agree. I think they, I think they look to build off the momentum from last week. Um, and, uh, and continue to continue to find their identity. Um, and I think that's, what's scary about that team is they, they played well and I think they're still, you know, trying to fit, trying to hit their stride. So it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, they got some things to figure out, but I definitely like the direction of that program. That'll do it for us. This is the JPN Hack Show, again, part of the Field of 12 Media Network, presented by our partners at Bet Rivers Sportsbook. I'm Joshua Perry. That's Christian Hackenberg. We had a great time with you, and we can't wait to talk to you again next week.